At many points during the run of this podcast, I've mentioned just how messed up mid-90s Apple was. It licensed the Mac OS to clone makers at the same time that it was desperately trying and failing to come up with a replacement. Microsoft was on the march with Windows 95 threatening to wipe out whatever remaining market share the Mac had. And while its product design lab was coming up with wild and creative prototypes, Apple's actual shipping computers were mostly boring and beige. In early 1997, Apple bought Next and Steve Jobs returned to Apple. Six months later, Apple CEO Gil Amelia was out and Jobs was in charge. Ten months later, Apple invited members of the press to the Flint Center in Cupertino, the very same place Jobs had introduced the original Mac for a product announcement. Now, even though Jobs had been back at the helm for nearly a year, the company still seemed to be in disarray. I worked at Macworld in 1997, and editors would be invited to all sorts of secret Apple media sessions that ended up being completely uninteresting. In hindsight, I wonder if that was a sign that Jobs was ripping things apart behind the scenes and the PR team was in complete disarray itself. I don't know. In any event, I wish I remembered what the Apple media event previous to this one was. All I remember is that it was terrible. Everyone who spent a day driving down to Cupertino, sitting in briefings and driving back home, felt like it was a complete waste of our time. And as a result, when the next invitation went out, we all felt like we were hearing from the proverbial boy who cried wolf. Our editor-in-chief agreed to take one for the team and go to the event, just so someone from Macworld would be there. The same was true at Macweek, the official newspaper of the Apple world. That's how bad things had gotten. The two most prominent voices covering Apple sent the minimum number of people to an Apple-called press conference because the company had lost all credibility. We didn't believe that Apple actually had anything valuable to say. So, of course, Apple made one of the most important announcements of its history before or since. It's 20 Max for 2020. I'm Jason Snell. This is number one, the original iMac. I want to start the story with my friend James Thompson, who worked at Apple at the time. I was in the Flint Center on the 6th of May in 1998 when the iMac was introduced. And I think it's a close second or third, depending on how you rank them, in terms of the memorable Apple introductions. And I think Steve knew that. He echoed the original iMac introduction with the hello again on the screen. And he was pretty much wearing the same outfit. That's the one event that I've been at where there was this, you could feel the excitement about it. Well, today, I'm incredibly pleased to introduce iMac, our consumer product. And iMac comes from the marriage of the excitement of the internet with the simplicity of Macintosh. That introduction was surprising on a number of levels. And the biggest surprise to me was that I was actually working on it and had been for the previous six months. I was part of a team making a new version of the AtEase software to be used with a then net-booting diskless workstation project called Columbus. And there were three different models, and they were all named after the ships. So there was the Nina, Pinta, and Santa Maria. And I'd seen a Columbus prototype with a circuit board sticking up through a hole cut in the top, like the engine of a hot rod. And 
we were all told to go along for this announcement. And as Steve started introducing it, we were sort of asking each other jokingly, was this Columbus? And then as it went on, it was pretty clear that it was. Then he said it was shipping in 90 days. And oh, how we laughed because there was absolutely no way that the software would be ready in 90 days. But it did ship in 90 days with a hard drive. And in the end, it was my software that never shipped at all because the whole diskless workstation idea had uh, gone up in smoke. It's worth remembering once again just where Apple was when Steve Jobs pulled a drape off the iMac and showed it to the world for the first time. It was in a bad place. I think it's fair to say that this is the point where Apple turned the corner to where they are today. People forget that they lost a billion dollars in the previous financial year and like 800 million the year before that. And Steve said that they were 90 days from bankruptcy. Here's Stephen Hackett. Jobs has come back. Apple's a wreck. They need a product that can sell. Their financials were were really pretty bad. And they put this machine together, by all accounts, in a pretty quick timeline. Here's Rick LePage. So in the space of a year, this guy did some amazing stuff that basically took us to where we are today. And to think of the Apple before that, being able to turn on that type of a dime, (laughs) there's absolutely no way they could do that. And that whole period, that short one year from taking over to the iMac, that's probably the most important era of Apple, I would say. Here's Shelley Brisbane. It was such a big deal when this happened. We'd already been through this transition where Steve Jobs had come back to Apple. What is he going to do? Well, first he's going to murder the clones. And then is what is he going to do? Oh, he's going to make these little plastic computers. Here's John Syracuse. The original iMac is entirely tied up with the plight of Apple, the company, because for as important as the machine was, its main story was, can Apple still do great things? And the iMac definitively said, absolutely, they can, and just wait for what's going to come. That is not the only story of the iMac, but I feel like that is the most important story of the iMac. It is the turnaround computer. Here's John Gruber. What problems did Apple have at that time? Boy, where to start, right? Their hardware was a mess. The product line was confusing. The whole reason they bought Next and brought the Steve Jobs leadership crew over was they needed a new operating system, but that was years away. What could they do? They could make it look better, make it fun. Yet at the same time, doing that would play right into the critics who would say all Apple stuff is pretty looking stuff for people who don't know any better. It was playing right into the hands of the harshest critics of the company. And they were like, to hell with them. And, and, you know, you can call it arrogance, but I think I, I would say it was confidence because they knew it was cool. You couldn't look at that iMac G3 and not think this is cool and fun. It really wasn't that big of a break. It just ran the same Mac operating system that they had before, but it just shows how important the hardware was to this equation where it's like we were selling Macs that if you just look at the screen and think about the mouse and the keyboard, how is the iMac any different? It's not. But everything around it and the packaging, like the product of the iMac really tapped into something that no one else had, it hadn't occurred to anyone else to tap into, which is people want things that are nice uh, looking and cute and daring and fashionable. Here's Harry McCracken. 
The iMac is one of the rare iconic Apple products that was a triumph of packaging above everything else. It was not about incredible new technology. It had this super flashy industrial design in this age when even Apple's computers were, were pretty beige at the time. And I, I imagine a lot of that had to do with the fact that Steve Jobs' return to Apple was still relatively new, and he needed to come up with something to get people excited about Apple that did not involve breakthrough technologies or an enormous amount of engineering, and they figured out the iMac, which was an incredible success. You don't get away with making a beige performa with the I.O. and power of the iMac. Take those exact insides and those same exact product decisions and put them in like a Centris 610 case. Nobody wants that computer. Jobs knew what we needed was a computer that set the world on fire the same way the original Mac was supposed to. The iMac was the right product at the right time. It wasn't really much of a technological advancement. It succeeded for three main reasons. Eye-catching design, simplicity, and perfect timing. The design is famous. The iMac was built around a 15-inch CRT display, tapered like a gumdrop. It's wrapped in semi-opaque aquamarine plastic. It looked nothing like anything you'd seen before. But it was fun and colorful in a world of boring beige computers. It's so unlike not only every other Mac, but every other computer on the market. People who had written Apple off as dead paid attention to it. It's not that everyone thought, oh, this will save Apple. Apple had to prove that this would work. But I think people who hadn't thought about Apple in a long time saw a picture of this in a magazine ad or whatever, and they're like, oh, yeah, Apple. And I think that was why this machine looks the way that it does. They needed people to talk about the products again. And if you make another beige box, it doesn't really matter. If you make something that's kind of this blue-green translucent plastic and then you rev it every nine months for four years with new colors and new finishes every time people are going to pay attention to that apple was wise to realize why the imac was successful and rather than just making it a one-off hey we made this cool teal computer and then went back to business as usual they leaned on it for years it was a great computer especially for someone who was used to living with crappy little PCs, like you could spend not a lot of money and you could get a computer that felt fun. The thing that I remember most about the whole iMac thing was the colors and the ad campaigns that they did with them. Every rollout, Jobs would say, we've got a commercial, I'd like to show it to you. The one where they did the Rolling Stones song. She's a rainbow. Can you imagine advertising for a computer where the only message was, this is the green one. It's not easy being green. It's not easy being green. Having to spend each day the color of the leaves. That was the ad. The ad was simply, hey, a computer exists that is green. I mean, you'd be like, that is amazing. I want the green one. I want the blueberry one. I want the grape one, right? This is how people buy cars. Cars cost hugely more than computers. Cars are these giant, incredibly heavy, expensive, deadly devices, and we pick them based on how pretty they are. Like, that's that's how the car industry has always worked. You go into the dealership and the car catches your eye. 
And for people who are saying computers shouldn't be sold this way, it's like cars are sold this way. It's arguably houses are sold this way. What's the most important thing about a house? It has to look cute. And that costs us the most expensive things people ever buy. And somehow computers can't be bought and sold based on that. Cra- it's not important. You have to look at the clock speed and the storage and how much RAM you get for a certain amount of money. It's like, but why? That's not how humans work. No matter how expensive and important the product is, if you make something that is beautiful and appealing, that's like 90% of the battle. That's why they could have an ad campaign that just played rock and roll music over over a Snow White Mac and just end the ad with iMac, Apple, and people would plunk down their money. It is an object of art. It's not my kind of art, but it's an object of art. You would go into your dentist's office and there would be an iMac on the counter. <laughs> Even if they weren't really using it, there was an iMac on the counter. People would stage houses with an iMac in them. It said you were hip. It said you were modern. It said that, you know, you cared about the computer that you you used. Now, if you didn't live through it, you might not believe this, but the iMac's look was incredibly influential. And I'm not just talking about the endless stream of iMac peripherals that were made out of translucent colored plastic, or even the sad PC makers who offered snap-on colored plastic panels to make their beige boxes look a little less beige. Translucent plastic was everywhere. Telephones, toys, clothes irons, and my personal favorite, the aqua blue colored George Foreman grill. Here's Dan Morin. Within a year, there were all these companies making computers with blue plastic on them. And then there were all these other things even outside the computer market that had blue plastic on them. And I always thought that was hilarious because it was like everybody looked at the iMac and was like, what's so good about this? I guess it's blue, right? And like that was like the only thing they could figure out was it's blue. That must be why it's successful. If we make our stuff blue, it will also be successful. And it really did not work very well. The other major factors in the iMac success were its simplicity and perfect timing. The iMac was a computer where if you just need a computer in the family room at your house or in a school or in a college dorm room, it's accessible. It does everything that people need to do. You didn't need to go get anything else. The famous, there's no step three commercial, right? That was it. You plugged it in, you turned it on, and you were good to go. Presenting three easy steps to the internet. Step one, plug in. Step two, get connected. Step three. (laughs) There's no step three. There's no step three. (laughs) In the late 90s, the internet was hitting the mainstream, and regular people were feeling pressure to get online, check their email, and surf the web. Throughout the 90s, the Mac had suffered specifically because it was not a PC and couldn't run PC software. There was this commonly held belief that if you used a PC at work, you should probably have a PC at home, too. Now, I'm not sure whether people were really bringing work home to continue working on their home PCs or if it was really just about familiarity and the fear of buying something incompatible, but it was just another reason for people to not buy a Mac. The rise of the Internet gave Apple a huge opening. Surfing the web and doing email don't require PC software. The Mac can do it just as well, and Apple positioned the iMac as essentially an appliance for connecting to the internet and doing whatever internet things you wanted to do. The i and iMac stood for internet. It's funny to say that, and it sounds dated, 
But that time for the mass market, for normal people, the wave was breaking on, okay, you need to have a computer. You know, at some point in the 50s, early 60s, it was like, okay, you need to have a TV in your living room. Time to get on board. And people needed a computer. And that's what I got my parents when they finally said to me, hey, John, I think we should get a computer. And I was like, yes, finally. My wife's mother, that was her first computer and had it for years and it lasted. And, you know, what a great computer for them. You take it out, you set it up, and then you plug in a keyboard, you plug in a mouse, and that's it. You're done. The I for it being internet is forgotten now, but it was actually an easy computer to take out of the box, set up, plug in, and get on the internet. Apple's ads leaned on its strengths very well. It doesn't have a rat's nest of wires and a bunch of crap you can't understand. It's cute, adorable, approachable, attractive, and fun. That was the first Mac that I literally started buying for family members. My father-in-law called me up one day and said, hey, this iMac looks kind of interesting. Should I get one? That's never happened at any other time in all the years I've been doing stuff, you know, dealing with the Mac. Part of the iMac's simplicity came from the fact that it was a technical reset for the Mac. Gone were a bunch of ports that had been mandatory on every Mac for more than a decade. Gone was the venerable floppy disk drive. In their places were a read-only CD-ROM drive and a new PC connectivity standard called the Universal Serial Bus, or USB. There's the introduction of USB and the removal of all the traditional ports. And again, it, this was one of those Apple knows best, take your medicine moments. They were absolutely right and they moved things forward. But I still have a drawer full of ADB to USB converters somewhere. Steve was doing a lot to make us eat our vegetables in terms of, okay, you don't have a floppy drive anymore, you're going to USB, and so along with the vegetables came the pretty fruit colors. People who were civilians were not really fans of fooling around with peripherals and, oh, this keyboard doesn't work with this kind of computer. I have an Apple ADB keyboard, but what can I use that with that's not a Mac? And Steve knew that we needed to get out of that Apple-only peripheral land that we were in. His answer was, let's make a great Mac with these pieces. And the way these pieces were assembled was in a very Steve Jobs way. All that stuff that you're about to put in this computer, you don't need that. If you don't need it, omit it. It will make the computer cheaper. It will make it simpler. That's going to be the big pitch of this thing. You take it out of the box, you connect it one or two cables, and you're done. So legacy ports, too complicated, too expensive, don't need them. It's not the future. This USB thing is here now. That should be enough. Floppy drive, leave that out too, because that's also the past. Like Just a clean break with the past given covering fire by this incredible design that was eye-catching and adorable and attracted everybody. I can't mention USB in the iMac without mentioning something that shipped in the iMac box. Something controversial. Can we talk about one thing, though? The mouse. Almost everybody I installed an iMac for, I, I put a different mouse on. One time I was in the, the storage room where there was all the old computers and the, the bins of peripherals and wires and stuff. And there must have been like, 25 of those mice just sitting at the bottom of one of those bins. Steve called it the coolest mouse on the planet and the most wonderful mouse you've ever used. And I think of it as the worst mouse that Apple has ever shipped because you pushed the mouse up 
And which direction the cursor went was a complete mystery because it was completely round. So if you were slightly off center in the rotation and it wasn't pointing straight up, it would go in another direction. And the story that I heard when I was at Apple was whenever Steve was getting demos of Mac OS X, he was getting these on iMacs and they would turn the mouse just ever so slightly just before he went into the room so that as soon as he started using it, the cursor would go in the wrong direction to kind of like just do this subtle uh, hint that perhaps this was not the best mouse in the world. But he's listed on the design patent for that mouse. So I think he was sort of personally invested in it. Good news is every Mac to this day has some form of USB on it. So if you happen to find a box with a couple dozen unused hockey puck style iMac mice in it, you can use them if you want. You might need an adapter. Personally, I wouldn't bother. It's funny. For all the importance of the iMac, the product itself only lasted a handful of years and ultimately didn't leave much of a mark on the Mac's product design direction. I find it interesting that even though the design was so influential, it also wasn't really not enduring in that they did the iBook, which obviously picked up on some of the design cues, but they pretty quickly switched to a more subdued aesthetic for iMacs and in general Apple products got a lot more tasteful. I mean, even if you love the iMac, it, it was not about good taste and simplicity. It was the kind of product that screamed, look at me, which maybe was what Apple needed at that point in that time because a lot of people had stopped looking at the Mac. The G3 iMac was based on a CRT display and the era of the tube monitor was almost over. In less than four years, there would be a new flat panel iMac that didn't look anything like the original. Today's iMacs carry on the name, but otherwise bear no resemblance. The G3 iMac was the right product at the right time, and its legacy is the fact that Apple and the Mac are still around. The iMac reestablished Apple's relevance. It provided it with an influx of cash and attention right at the moment when it was on the brink of extinction. It provided the fuel to allow Apple to complete the transition to Mac OS X, to launch a chain of retail stores, and to create the iPod. Those ingredients along with a borrowed lowercase letter I, led to the iPhone and iPad, and to Apple being the enormous company it remains to this day. Twenty Max for Twenty Twenty was written by me, Jason Snell. My thanks to Stephen Hackett, John Gruber, John Syracusa, Dan Morin, Harry McCracken, Shelley Brisbane, Rick LePage, James Thompson, and everyone else who participated in this project. Thanks to Brian Hamilton, who made these episodes sound great through his post production help, and thanks to everyone who listened to this podcast, read my essays, and watched the accompanying videos. You can find everything about this project at sixcolors.com/slash Twenty Max. And be sure to stay subscribed to this podcast feed in your podcast app of choice. I don't have any plans for an immediate follow-up to this series, but you never know what the future will bring. It was just about a year ago that I first began constructing a list of what would become the 20 most notable Macs of all time. And here we are at the end of that list. Thanks again for listening.